0: One of the most significant advantages of a small agency is the ability to stay in its lane and go deep into a niche. Today, we're talking to an agency owner about her niche in cultural intelligence. Cultural intelligence is not just a hot topic, but a much needed one. Authentic representation matters because it empowers. I'm speaking from my own experience as an Asian-Canadian who grew up seeing very few, if at all, Asians represented as business owners, except for the stereotypical laundromat or corner store owner. Cultural intelligence supports responsible brands in learning the difference between authentic and inauthentic ways to have diverse representation. I'm all for the authentic. I hope you are too. If that's you, tune in to hear how cultural intelligence in indigenous communities connects this agency owner to big brands. Welcome to the Small But Mighty Agency Podcast. If you're a creative consultant or agency owner who wants to know what the roller coaster ride really looks like to grow your business from one to many, you're in the right place. My guest and I pull back the curtains on the realities of growing and running agencies of different sizes and what it takes to build a team. And if you're anything like me, you want more than the highlight reel. You want to learn from the mistakes of others so that you can stop short of making the same mistakes. I'm your host, Audrey Joy Kwan. I spend my days as a coach and consultant to multiple six and seven figure agency owners. For the last seven years, I've been behind the scenes helping people grow, lead and operate small but mighty agencies. Here at the Small But Mighty Agency podcast, we'll uncover what works and equally as important what didn't work to get these business owners to where they are today. Hey friends, we have Jen with us today and I'm excited to share the unique things she is doing in her niche and explore how her agency is serving the Indigenous community. Jen, I'll let you take it away. Tell us about your agency.
1: Hi there, my name is Jennifer Tabak and I'm a partner here at Design to Plume Inc. We are an indigenously owned women-led design studio that focuses on organizations creating social impact by serving underrepresented communities. We're based in Sudbury, Ontario but do work all across Canada and the U.S.
0: In our offline conversations, we've discussed working with Indigenous communities and how cultural understanding is vital. You have an experience of the culture and have Indigenous upbringing. May I ask you to share your experience
1: It's been amazing bringing the knowledge that we have as communicators, and I always call ourselves as designers and even comms, people now I'm recognizing as translators. So it's always when we're working with uh, First Nation, Inuit, or Métis organizations, they have a message to say. It's really been the same message for a very, very long time, and it's been a really interesting journey to try to recognize where we can make connections that just did not exist before. Sometimes it's as foundational as building trust, you know, getting an organization to trust us to understand that we're coming with good intentions. We want to support them because we recognize the challenges they've had. Whether it's dealing with other design agencies who aren't listening, who don't recognize, you know, maybe capacity challenges. If your marketing team, if you're in a remote community and you have, you know, a comms person who just is only on a contract for six months, that's a much different plan. Than you know a well-established organization with a 50-year history. So we've really done a lot of learning uh, about seeing what challenges those organizations have themselves, and now we're at the point where we take those challenges and tell you know like the government of Canada or big national banks. We say, okay, here's what is happening on the ground. Let us guide you into that conversation. And it's you know it's it's not. I, I think we're very good at it, but there is still so much learning left to do.
0: Here in North America, how we do business is westernized and we follow Western cultural norms that other cultures might not resonate with. What are key things you've noticed in your experience working with indigenous cultures?
1: Yeah, one of the biggest things is most designers and a lot of people, especially when they're in school or receiving their education, are trained in design in a very Western way. It's you know, I was very pro-minimalism and these ideas of what a good design should look like, what a good website should look like, what a good logo looks like. And very early on, I recognized that okay, that was not gaining traction. You know, and I tried to take a look at why, and in a lot of cultures and in indigenous cultures and in a lot of Asian cultures, you know, it's not really about the minimalism. It's not about forcing one message through in a very simple way. It's about creating these elaborate beautiful stories through colors, through symbols, which really puts the work on the viewer. You know, we're not a huge brand that's trying to tell you buy our product. We're a smaller organization or, you know, trying to tell these very diverse stories. And it's been a beautiful journey to kind of recognize that because it also really helps uh, automatically include, think about diversity, inclusion, and equity and accessibility. Um, It's kind of built in when you start acknowledging all these layers and complexity. Those things just naturally fit in.
0: You bring up a great point about design aesthetics and how traditions are essential considerations, not just what is trendy. We put cultural meaning to things when we work with clients. How do we rethink some of the things we consider norms?
1: I think the biggest challenge for us to kind of do, like, and we run an agency. So, you know, we have project managers, we have timelines, clients will have them themselves, indigenous or not, funding deadlines, things just have to get done. But one of the biggest learnings that we've done and that we've tried to create processes around is creating space for thought for discussion and then creating time to walk away from a project for a couple of days in some cases a month in some cases is hunting season or you know summer camps that kind of thing and so respecting that not everyone feels comfortable giving an opinion immediately Um, on sometimes very important work that's taken a very long time to get there, which is always at odds, which with that creative planning, because we're like, okay, we're going to give you a logo in a week, you need to kind of give us feedback. You know, is someone going to spend that full week thinking right about that? No, they have a life, they have things to do. And that's been a really interesting process. And some of our best work has come when both the client, whether they're Indigenous or not, giving space, for that. It's also been interesting because in the last one of the last projects uh we did, we had elders from across Canada. And you know what we scheduled, we have busy time, you know, I schedule my day probably to the, you know, minute. So it's often sometimes waiting in a meeting for people to arrive. You know, and that's, you know, been 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then trying to plan for people's own internal schedules, you know, what I might perceive as being late to a meeting, you know, is someone Finally finding the space where they feel OK to arrive and talk about that topic. And, you know, in a business sense, it's sometimes at odds to try to get if we have a corporate client to respect that and to let, you know, Indigenous people lead that work and lead the conversations that they want to be a part of.
0: That's a great example. How we interpret lateness in a meeting as a sign of disrespect isn't necessarily the case when working with indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that in your business knowing it's not a sign of disrespect?
1: Yeah. and, And yeah, that's a great question. In that project specifically, what we had was two project managers, one on our team who was really, you know, really knew how much flexibility we had. And then a project manager on the client side who understood, you know, it's really my place to wait for that elder to show up. It's my sign of respect. I'm asking them for their time, um, you know, within a certain reasonable circumstance. And I think having everyone understand that even though, you know, we're the hired team to come in, we're the ones who are doing this work, trying to stay on budget, on time, that the best work is going to come from understanding that it's not someone disrespecting me, it's giving me a place to respect the people whose opinions. And often doing the work, you know, voluntarily as well, or definitely not being compensated as much as I think they should be mm-hmm. compensated. So it's interesting to kind of focus on that humility as a designer, as a speaker, as a like person who really focuses mm-hmm. on getting getting things done. But it is also cultural training for staff. You know, there is a way to acknowledge, to have these conversations, people who do, you know, run businesses of that to recognize that you're in a culture that's different. It's an It shouldn't be westernized, you know, and as much as I might have thought differently 10 years ago to be like, hey, we have to get this done. It will come together and having trust in that process as well. It's been a huge shift from a top down, right? How do I talk to my staff about that encourage them to to plan a little bit longer, to be on the client, on their project manager? But it's a mindset shift, really.
0: I know you understand the culture and have an indigenous upbringing and that indigenous communities are diverse. I think of my cultural background, I'm Chinese and there are different dialects and norms. Growing your cultural intelligence is investing in training, which has led to new opportunities for your business. Tell me more about staying in your lane going deep into the cultural intelligence of Indigenous communities and the opportunities that have come from your niche.
1: Yeah. And I think the idea of, you know, as you said, of staying in our lane and I I was I was thinking about the topic and like being authentic to what I love to do and to myself and celebrating that in a way that, hey, it makes me money. It supports a team and it does great work. Like, you know, it's such a beautiful combination. And there was a point where, you know, when we started the agency we were really aimless. You know, our training is like, okay, you should work for a corporation. You know, your logo should look like this if you want to be successful. And I just I didn't feel I didn't want to be everything to everyone. You know, and I could see this problem with, you know, we were working with band offices and non-profits for and they were just struggling. And I thought there's so many of them that could use specific help. So, that was probably about 8 years ago we said, okay, we're specifically going to focus on this problem and then i could just really see things start to fall into place and like you said my understanding of cultural you know of cultural norms for me it's also noticing how different that is right like i'm urban indigenous there's so many communities we work that are completely mm. remote so it's always culture shock to me as well as how different we are even in communities that are close together so i think that's been a really important factor in Recognizing that by staying in our lane, we've really seen how big it is and how many opportunities are there. Um, not just in design, but consultation. One of our partner works on accessibility and accessibility has been deeply rooted in indigenous philosophy for a very long time. And trying to, now it is just trying to really state what is true true to our mission because that lane gets bigger every day, every day. and it's hard to stay focused sometimes.
0: If you create a complex business that makes you feel trapped, you will never want to grow your business. You'll do little or big things to self-sabotage growth because nobody wants to scale overwhelm. Not you, not me. I've been there. I learned this lesson as a second in command of an agency. I could not turn off my brain and relax because I would worry about what was and wasn't being done. It wasn't until I looked at the business from a productized service perspective. It gave us more bandwidth to double the revenue and sell and exit the business. Since then, I've been behind the scenes of multiple six and seven figure service-based businesses, helping consultants and marketers who are at capacity get out of being stuck in service delivery and growing. It all starts by looking through the lens of a productized service. Download the free productizer service roadmap, go to audreyjoyquan.com forward slash roadmap, or click the link directly in your show notes. It's been 13 years of owning and operating your business. In the first five years, you were serving everybody. And in the last eight years, you've claimed your niche and built deep expertise working with indigenous communities. How did you go from being a generalist to a specialist?
1: That is a great question. And I think in the first five years, it was really having confidence in that. You know, I'm like, I think there is a pro- there is a problem here. I knew that, you know, I was very confident there was a problem. But what I wasn't confident of was that, you know, a graphic designer that's what I started here as a graphic designer a programmer do I have the skill sets that could really make a change and then I think around you know at the time we're at maybe in the last two years I've really seen that as I've stepped away a little bit to look at the problem from a top-down perspective you know that design is not is, is one piece of the solution but it is a little bit about that whole picture so it took me about five years to recognize okay I need to step away from making the logos (laughs) to talk a little bit about the systemic problems. How do they inform design work? How can my team do better? Start to give that responsibility to amazing designers. And I'm always encouraging more Indigenous youth or underrepresented youth to to be in the comms, communication, creative industries because they need those voices. And now I'm hoping, like, I really feel like at the end of that season, I love how you put that, you know, at the end of that kind of thing, it was a recognition of how much opportunity there was and taking the knowledge that we learned at a very grassroots hands-on level and now applying it to processes policies hiring practices it's been a complete like looking down from the ground to looking up and very forward to what the next 10 years looks like which is daunting so i'm definitely at the start of this season because you know, I don't know what the cliffhanger is going to look like. I don't know what the ending is going to look like. Um, but I'm very excited about kind of the new playing field and the new organize. Well, not new organizations, but new to us organizations who are having the conversations that we started a mm-hmm. few years ago, and they're still like shocked and awed by. They're like, "Wow, I need that." You know, this articulates a problem and provides a solution. And you know, getting to practice those skills and that insight at a at a bigger level, national, international level. It's very very exciting right yeah, now.
0: Yeah, once you found your lane it became easier to build your thought leadership and it sounds like by stepping out of day-to-day operations it gave you space to tap into the powerful message you have inside you. Mm-hmm. It's that work of stepping into the message that's helped you carve a reputation for your agency. I know from our chats that you were at a conference recently and met Fortune 500 companies that want to explore ways to be more inclusive and diverse. Some of these companies you talk to, what do you think attracts them to your agency? You're a small agency. You're 15 people. What do you think gets them knocking at your door?
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that's been surprising and both solidifying, you know, that, that I feel like we are in the right role. Our first, like, you know, the first big calling we were working with, John Hopkins University asked us to do a rebrand and eventually a rename of their Center for Indigenous Health. And I thought, what an amazing opportunity. Why is there no one in the States doing this work? You know, is the conversation not behind? Is there just not enough, you know, Indigenous youth? in that calm's creative design field. And, you know, it kind of set off another light bulb in my head. Okay, if we're in Canada and we're, we're quite, you know, we're very happy with our workload, there is still lots of opportunities. And it's always nice as a business owner to start to realize that you're the line t- that you don't have to accept everything. You know, that's, I think, a huge moment where you're like, I don't really want this work and I don't need it so I can focus on my passion um, and the things that really excite me. So that I really had to take a, another step back and say, OK, what made a client like that see the value in what we're saying when we weren't we weren't in the U.S. particularly right now. Thankfully, as design, it's it's very easy to apply that expertise, you know, globally, which I hope to do someday, even beyond the States. And then, you know, yeah, the conference. So we did go for the Go for the Greens conference in Florida and It was our first chance to say, okay, what does this market look like? We got to talk to UPS. We got to talk to Moffitt Cancer Center and Nike and Disney. And we sat down and have a conversation with their procurement. You know, it's a very basic entry level process and some of the other staff and, and, um, you know, members of the corporations there. But you could really see as even as they were on panels, I think there were companies that stood out as being far superior thinking about what communities they serve. Nike having specifically Indigenous and Native programming, which has been really exciting to watch how a private organization, you know, can try to build leadership for the next level. They can use products, you know, they can generate those funds, but then invest in those communities in what I think is a really good way. But it's hard to find support to continue those programs. Like, it's great to have the idea. And even someone, you know, even like UPS, they have very, they have campaigns where they'll put Indigenous art on boxes, which is great, I think, to normalize it, to show that it is kind of an everyday celebration. But then to see how much support that they still require, you know, do they have those internal programs that support staff to get into leadership positions? And I was really surprised. You know, there's still such a high, high need for that in the U.S. and for very, very large international companies. They struggle with the same problems that governments face, local grassroots organizations. And that's you talked about, like exponential growth. How do we service that? You know, how do we make sure that we have the processes in place, that we can apply the knowledge from a grassroots, you know, all the way up? Jen, what do you think
0: are the first steps for organizations?
1: Organizations that have identified the problem internally, that's a first great step to say we don't, we don't even know how to approach getting representation or showing or encouraging, you know, leadership in a corporation of that size or, you know, attracting that audience a bit more. And at the conference, one of the speakers said, you can't be it if you can't see it. And that really resonated with me because, you know, I wouldn't have considered being a business owner. But, you know, when I was in college, we actually had a small business owner come in and she was a young woman. She wasn't much older than me. And I thought, well, now I can definitely do this (laughs) because I had seen it, you know, and it does take an upfront investment by corporations, by organizations to sink money and resources in developing that talent so that, you know, Indigenous youth can be part of management teams, can be part of leadership, can become CEOs of their own you know, multinational kind of companies. And that's just what we need. And it's the whole, you know, and it's, you know, very big picture thinking the whole system, capitalism, you know, it's set up to keep a lot of these people out. They don't see the opportunities. If you're not, you know, in a city and you're in a remote community, how are you going to do an unpaid internship? How are you going to, you know, work for that company in a city completely unsupported? So it does require, you know, A whole other community to kind of come together and support people and encourage them into these jobs or even taking away how important to me design programming technology is to almost any path that they have in life. Is it a clear, you know, kind of a, a clear process? No, but I know that corporations, you know, are one of the first places that can really support it with those resources. When
0: you think about working with these organizations, where do you see your agency having an impact
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Because as designers, you know, and as you kind of step away a little bit from the process of design, it's really interesting to see how early you should get in the door. And we have been doing more consultation to talk about, you know, if you're starting a campaign, who should be the writers, who should be directing it, who should, you know, you know, what kind of photographers should you have actually taking it? One of our big components has been, you know, there's no stock photos, well, pay to get your own stock photos, don't rely on, you know, people who are not experienced, you know, don't have cultural literacy in those communities in indigenous communities or understand the history to try to grab them to sell them for $2, like invest that money into that. It sounds like you
0: see a gap and you want to fill it. I hear the passion for education and consulting on indigenous cultures and communities. Is that the next phase for your agency?
1: Yeah. And that's definitely like, you know, as much as we have a tangible service, we've been working with larger organizations who have an in-house design team, you know, so like, you know, the governments, they have their own design teams, Nike, they will have their own. And so that's been also an interesting thing to say, not even you're going to use our team, you're going to use all our expertise and our designers, and we're going to create, you know, strategies, we're going to provide the education, because there isn't a system set up to do that, especially for communications and design teams to talk about that cultural literacy. And it's it's always interesting, because I feel like it's so innate to us, you know, we just make these considerations. And it's, it's odd to be like, that's teachable.
0: It's your lane. It's the result of choosing your lane and becoming experts and working with Indigenous communities. Yeah. You see gaps and can now educate and consult other brands. Yeah. It's what corporations need to do innovative and good work in this world.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's that you know, as a business owner, it's recognizing those opportunities and it might be okay. You might've done programming of a website, but now you understand the process really from top to bottom, from tip to tail. Like I like to say is looking at things and that those skills are transferable and you can't grow exponentially as one person, you know, and you need to start having teams, you need to start educating people in, in your processes and how you approach the work and philosophy, you know, and it, it grows very organically on its own <laughs> but then when it kind of catches you know and it's like we're almost at the point where i really have to do one more like are we in our lane what is outside of it what is in it you know how do i keep very quickly going in the direction that i want to head and keep our clients really educated on the philosophies that we can provide to them
0: and that's the exciting thing about owning a business mm-hmm. we get to evaluate our strengths year after year make strategic decisions to navigate the business direction and choose the things we're passionate about mm-hmm. and And on that note, Jen, what keeps you inspired and motivated?
1: It is those opportunities. Right now it is to decide, you know, how much technically do we want to, technological pursuits do we want to, the whole idea of augmented reality pursuing our work. Clients have had conversations about, you know, sacredness. How do we put sacredness in a digital space and represent, you know, and honor Indigenous protocol when we work with museums, such as the Royal Ontario Museum? You know, we talk about ancestral objects. How should those be treated? Or if an elder gives us a story, it needs to be respected. And that gets me excited. Every morning I wake up and I think, oh, my gosh, I learned so much yesterday. (laughs) How do I implement that into things that, you know, that where I know that solutions are being provided by clients? Oftentimes they have the knowledge but how do I, you know, get them articulating their goals and their missions and getting them to move towards that? But also, what can I extrapolate for other communities? That gets me excited. And seeing that that potential, you know, in in the U.S., it's still very much the same. And the conversation is, is you know, people told me 12 years behind where the you know, Canada and other countries are. So I'm always wondering how do all these tools, how do all these connections, what other connections can I make to get a spark? Thank you, Jen, for being here. Where can people find you online? We have our website, www.diplume.ca on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. We're really trying to put my hope is in the next little bit, put a few, a bit more like professional, processy stuff onto LinkedIn for um, other people who are working in the space and trying to connect there. But I do want to point out we still do a lot of Facebook because a lot of our uh, Indigenous organizations are on there and we love to share their materials and highlight things for that. So, you know, while maybe not at the forefront of, um, you know, TikTok and the dances, it's still very important as well. <laughs>
0: Our conversation has been so inspiring. It's been an honor to have you here. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hey there. Thanks for hanging out with me at the Small But Mighty Agency podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app and share it with a friend. I'll see you in the next one.